The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law professor and trial attorney Stephen Wagner. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you. We are also joined, of course, by Professor Michael Cohen. So we are at full strength today. Very exciting today. And and Stephen, today I cannot say live from Bakersfield because today I'm in San Luis Obispo. All right. (laughs) As am I. I'm in classroom number one, Mitch, warming it up. I think you're going to be here tonight, right? Actually, I was there last night. Tonight I head back to Monterey to to participate in orientation there. Oh, okay, great. It's all warmed up for you. (laughs) You're, You're trailblazing as per usual. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, guys. How are you? Great. So, Michael, are you here in the United States or are you internationally traveling this week? You know, no, I, I am here in the United States and um, here in my second home in Carmel, where I have spent every morning in the ocean, and I'm starting to remember that uh, life is big and we are small. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. That's Very a great good. way to start the day, Michael. really is. So, Mitch, today, Michael, today we are going to talk about law and politics, and Mitch, I think I want to give you credit for framing this issue because it's one that we have been, uh, I guess you can say, working around the edges on for a while, Uh, and we're going to make efforts to distinguish between law and politics, and of course this means we'll talk about the three branches of government, the executive, legislative, and judicial branches, and I think most of our focus is going to be on, well, probably the executive branch. Well, Stephen, I think that's that's a pretty good guess. You know, I thought we should talk about this because as, we've, as we frequently discuss on this show, we read a lot of things in the news or hear about a lot of things in the news. Uh, many times it's overblown. Many times it's not framed in the context of the law. And I think the non-lawyers listening to our show sometimes get carried along with, as we say, the talking heads on whether something you know, is legal or illegal. And, and I thought maybe we could just pause for a moment in all of that and talk about a couple of the laws that may actually apply when somebody who is in public service 
makes a comment in their official role for either, as you put it out, the executive, the legislative, or the judiciary. And then it really covers, uh, continues on into when a citizen of the United States, or actually anybody, is called in to testify or make an official act, take an official act, such as filing a security clearance or filing a government document, uh, are there standards that rise up so that you have a higher level of scrutiny and that if you, as we're going to talk about, appear to have intentionally deceived or falsified a record in your relationship with the U.S. government, who is all of us, that's not they, that's us, <laughs> is, are there legal jeopardies? And that, that's the way I would like to frame it today, within the law, not the politics, but the law, all right? That's a good setup, uh, Mitch. And I think, uh, Michael, let me bring you in here because uh, one way I like to frame this issue in this segment is, are members of the executive, legislative, or judicial branch branches above the law, so to speak? And that might be a good way to, to get started. Yeah. Well, you know, in some senses, Stephen, they are. Um, uh, you know, the American public probably doesn't understand or even realize that the United States Congress has and continues to exempt itself from almost every law it passes. Um, it, it, there's always some provision in, in most laws. So, for example, all of the employment discrimination laws and so many laws that affect all of us in our daily lives don't, don't apply in the United States Congress at all. Con consequently, when there's a scandal in, in Congress involving a congressman and um, say, gender discrimination or something like that, it is a public scandal or a media scandal. It isn't um, an employment law issue. There is no redress for that type of conduct. Um, and, that, and that goes um, uh, generally to give the House great latitude on the floor and amongst each other to bluff and uh, d do all kinds of other types of things. Um, uh, heck, people have been caned to death literally, on the floor of the United States Senate. I mean, senator beating another senator with a wooden stick until they died. Um, the American Congress is a rough place. It is not a place for those with uh, uh, a, a light and... Thin uh, skin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which you know, makes it perhaps a less thoughtful place than it should be as well. Uh, anyway, let, me add, let me add one piece, because you said no redress, but one of the balancing powers here is that there is redress, not legal redress. The redress is at the ballot box, right? Elected. And so the idea is we retain the power to redress their comments, behavior, performance every time we put them up for election, correct? That's absolutely right, Mitch. The, the constitutional check on politicians is the ballot box. As you said, it's the vote. Um, of course, you know, that not everybody has the right to vote. The country wasn't set up that way. In fact, the country was set up to disenfranchise most people as a republic. And currently, um, uh, you know, when we talk about the politics of structuring districts and uh, gerrymandering and all the types of things that go on, which are actually quite hot issues currently before the Supreme Court, um, these things really matter because they really implement the ability of the electorate to exercise that vote and control that politician in some way that at least uh, was intended by a representative form of government. You know, Michael, when you were mentioning the uh, 
Congress and specifically acts or congressional acts, one thing that I thought of was the limit uh, that the immunities, because I think you were addressing the potential immunities, meaning that uh, while uh, Congress is in an official capacity in session, many of the laws don't apply or, or, or they are really by law kind of in an odd way above the law. Right. right. So I, what just, happens outside of the session, of course, is not necessarily um, going to, to blanket members of Congress with forms of immunity. That's right, unless they are, are doing something work-related, including going to or from uh, the, the Congress. Uh, Harry Byrd, the senator from West Virginia, was famous for you know, driving approximately 120 miles per hour uh, down the interstate, doing essentially whatever he wanted um, until he was pulled over and claimed his immunity going to and from Congress, and off he went. <laughs> you know? So I, you know, I, I think that some of these guys, not, not only do they... They understand the principle, but they use it to its fullest, and um, many may enjoy it. So let's talk about that. Let me tease that one just a little bit for you, Michael, because I think that's a great, great reminder that, that in their role as a member of Congress, they have great latitude, and they're given legal immunity of so many things. But it, but it does depend on what they're doing. So let's go back a couple weeks, and I don't want to spend all the time because we did a whole show on it, but let's let's talk about then Senator Jeff Sessions appearing before Congress and testifying about his contacts with the Russians. And the allegation at the time was in that capacity, well, two, two things came out of that that really go right to what you said. Number one was his interaction with Russians as a senator and chair of the armed services or member of the armed Sur- or intelligence committee, I forget which, and therefore broadly covered with with opportunity to do things and and have certain security clearances, or was he meeting as a member of the campaign in which his senatorial privilege would not extend to that? And then when he's sitting there in front of the body in which he at the time was still serving as senator, which hat was he wearing? Is he different as a nominee or as a senator? And so it gets a little more nuanced, doesn't it? It certainly does. Yeah, if he if he's if he's wearing a non-senatorial hat, uh, uh, his statements are subject to the law. You know, you can't make a false statement to the United States government, um, executive, legislative, or judicial branch. And um, uh, you know, there's a lot built into that, of course. Um, but all the same, that would trigger one set of liabilities. But you're 100% right, Mitch, that if he were acting in a senatorial capacity both in the meetings um, or in the testimony. He's going to be given very, very broad latitude for that conduct, with the exception of treason, which is the one crime built into the con- Constitution and named as the, as the highest crime, for that matter. And uh, treason is a crime against the nation, so you can't you know, claim immunity um, uh, by um, acting um, in, a, in a treasonous capacity from government. In fact, it's often worse, um, because the greatest treason can be from within. So, Stephen, I would say that there, there's a case, and we dealt with it in a previous show, that, that that was a legal conversation. It wasn't a political conversation, whether you did or didn't like Jeff Sessions, or you did or didn't like whether he did or didn't meet with the Russians. Uh, that There's an example of a dialogue of a set of issues 
that it's important to know the law, the status of the immunities of a, of a congressperson, um, than the fact that there are not things they're immune from, such as treason, and if they're outside of the definition of where their immunity is, issues such as perjury and testifying under oath in front of a committee would come into play. So would yeah, you agree? I, I, I mean, there's a legal issue. That's right, Mitch. And I think when you mentioned uh, sessions in a in a witness capacity, that also triggers other issues because, of course, an oath is administered at that point, and the reference to which hat is he wearing is very, very significant. But once you have uh, sworn to offer uh, valid and truthful testimony, uh, that could trigger perjury. And uh, your reference to treason is good, too, because that is a scenario where you would look squarely upon whether or not the elements are met. And, uh, of course, that gives rise to uh, articles of impeachment if we're, in fact, looking at the, um, the office of the president. Yeah, St- Stephen's point about, <clears throat> about the oath is so compelling. I mean, it, and it, it does raise uh, a, a wonderfully interesting question. Uh, it shouldn't be as interesting as it is, but it is. Um, and it's this. Um, you, if you break the oath of office, you know what, what's the penalty, and and that does depend on you know who the official is and and what oath they've broken. Uh, but there's you know in, in a courtroom you um, you are taking an oath to tell the truth, but you really have that obligation anyway. Nonetheless, you're taking an oath. Uh, you know, when you testify in front of Congress, you're taking an oath and subscribing to tell the truth, as as Stephen mentioned. The president, of course, takes an oath to execute the laws of the nation faithfully. Um, by way of example. And there's a lot of talk currently in politics about the president deciding not to execute the laws faithfully. In fact, the president has expressed a very direct intent to blow up many laws um, and uh, and not execute the laws at all um, and execute others. And that's not unusual. Every president has a preference for the policy and the laws that they want to spend their resources executing. So, Mike, Mike, you've led perfectly into where I'd like to go next, and but I'd like to go more specific because well, it's hard for some of us to conceptualize the the parameters of the oath of office and all laws. I'd like to talk about specifically one law, and Stephen, I know I'm running this into a break here in about a minute and a half, but I'd just like to set this up for our next section. For those who are listening, go to 18 U.S.C. 1001. That's 18 U.S. Code 1001. And this is a very specific law that deals with individuals who are uh, in a matter, dealing with a matter in the jurisdiction, so it's both internally and externally, of the executive, legislative, or judicial branch. So that covers, as Stephen, you introduced us, to all branches of the government. And if an individual falsifies, conceals, or covers up a material fact, makes a material false, fictitious, or fraudulent fraudulent statement, or uses a false document or writing, uh, that there is both penalties and potential prison term for doing that in front of or within the jurisdiction of the executive, legislative, and judicial. So when we come back, Stephen, I'd like to apply that to some of this week's news. Okay, Mitch. When we come back, we will pick up on United States Code 1001 and the oath of office and potential acts of fraud. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law over Voice America Radio. We're talking about law and politics, and our our discussion will continue after this short break. (music) 
Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law, established 44 years ago. We are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, this is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepherd Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepherd Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D. M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Our discussion today centers on law and politics and our efforts to distinguish between those two. And of course, our spotlight is on the Beltway and specifically executive action. And Mitch, you wanted to introduce a topic that will get us discussing uh, USC 1001, and that's a, a significant code section related to the oath of office and potential acts of fraud. Yeah, and I think as Michael would tell us, it, it actually goes beyond just the oath of office. What this basically says is not surprising, I hope, to anybody in the United States, that you shouldn't lie, right, in your role of a representative of the United States. You shouldn't lie when you're appearing before the executive, legislative, or judicial, branch, uh, or judicial branch. You shouldn't give false documents. You shouldn't give false statements. I mean, Michael, you said at the very beginning, right, that it, 
we shouldn't need to look to the law to know that there might be a problem with lying, right? Uh, we shouldn't, no, but... <laughs> okay. So I would like to pick out two things out of this week's news to just frame our conversation, because right out of the, the headlines. Uh, the President of the United States stood in the Oval Office with General John Kelly, a distinguished military general, who was being named his new chief of staff. And I'm not going to reference unnamed sources, and I'm not going to reference fake news. I'm going to only reference the exact words that the President of the United States said in front of all of us as he stood in the Oval Office as President of the United States. All right, so we know he's in his role as President because he's there in the Oval Office talking about naming one of his chief executives. And he said two things. He referenced a call with the president of Mexico, President Nieto. And he said, even the president of Mexico called me. And then he proceeded to explain the discussion that he had with the president of Mexico. And further on in that conversation, he said that I was called by the Boy Scouts of America about my speech, and they said it was the greatest speech that had been ever given to the Boy Scouts. All right, have I set up the scenario adequately, Stephen? Two, uh, two statements by the president. Yes, the only thing I want to do, and I hate to nitpick, but the setting was a voluntary press conference, correct, with respect to both of those statements? It was a Oval Office event called by the president, set up with the White House press corps there. Okay, got it. Okay. So, my question is, now that we've heard from the president that neither of those calls happened. So his presidential spokesman has now come back on the air and said, in actuality, there were no phone calls. And there's been no question from the White House about whether that is or isn't true. We now know it was not true. No calls happened. The call with the president of Mexico didn't happen. The call from the Boy Scouts didn't happen. So the president just made this up from whole cloth, literally just completely fabricated the the these incredibly public statements, um, uh, and the the justification for that is 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 what? Uh, why is that okay? <laughs> That's a really good question, and and it's not whether it's okay, Michael, that I'm concerned about. As lawyers, what it made me think of is. 18 U.S.C. 1001, which says you're not supposed to make materially false statements or present false written documents as part of the executive, legislative, judicial grants. And so it made me think, well, were either of these two statements by the President of the United States in his role as the executive a violation of 18 U.S.C. 1001, or is it just politics? So, So let me just since I brought it up, let me just throw out there that I would say that, in my opinion, one of these is a violation of USC 101, and the other one is just politics. Wow, Mitch, that's a tall order. If if you were writing in a blue book and an exam, you'd be into this like eight, nine pages. Okay, so you're able to distinguish between the statement related to the Boy Scouts and the alleged laudable statement about his speech, and then the president of Mexico, and I, I believe, Mitch, that relates to the president's call to, the president of Mexico's call to the president 
relating to border control, correct? That's correct. And there were some statistics that the president claimed about uh, migration across the border and how it's improved under his administration. And so he was he was talking positively, particularly since it, he was actually talking the framework of the good work that John that he was saying that John Kelly had done as Secretary of Homeland Security, and in that context said. He referenced Mexico and the improvement of the migration patterns and how things are good, and that even the president of Mexico called him to congratulate him on how much better this administration is doing about that. Okay, that's right, and it relates to the the decrease in border crossings or uh, a shift in locations for border crossings, right? And going both ways, both yeah. from the United States to Mexico and Mexico back. Yes. Okay. And that and that includes right, Mitch, the the sixty five thousand people that. Um, men in uniform and guns have uh, literally picked out of their homes at 4.30 a.m., stuck on buses and uh, jail suits and sent across the border back to Mexico, right? Because that's happened. It, it, it would be all of those statistics to the president. He wasn't that specific, Michael, about those in general, but he was saying that he thought that General Kelly had done a very good job as Homeland Security doing all of the things, including what you just referenced. But the question is not whether John Kelly did a good job or not. I'm not questioning the veracity of that. That's a judgment call of a manager over a subordinate. The question is, when the president then said this was confirmed by the president of Mexico in a telephone call, is that what we now know, which is a false statement? Because the president's press secretary now said the call never happened. They really had that conversation a month and a half ago on the sidelines at the G20. And so the president was just kind of, ref uh, I don't know, I can't even go there. <laughs> I, let's, I think I'd, I'd love to hear Stephen's take as a prosecutor on the elements of the statute. Uh, there are, uh, I have some uh, constitutional layer to add to your question, Mitch, because I I know that you, you want me to stick to the law. I would love to now go off on a, about a 20-minute rant um, about the uh, ethics and psychotic um, condition of a president who manufactures things from whole cloth to suit his larger ambitions. Right. We're not going to let you do that. We're going to make you I, I get that. I get that. I get that. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm reeling myself back in. <laughs> and, and with that, let me hear Stephen, and I can, I can lay some constitutional legality to the president's statements on both sides. Yeah, so, Michael, I don't have um, 1001 in front of me, so I don't have all the elements, but the the action centers on fraudulent statements and obviously the focal point is going to be on misleading statements or statements that are i think motivated um, to mislead so um, one question i have up front is going to be what was the setting in which the statement was made was it in an official capacity and i think mitch you're going to say that the the answer to that is a resounding yes because Can't it was get much more official than standing in the oval office as the yeah. president states <laughs> I, I've, got the, I've got the optics that's good um it's it's quite what a cocktail party wasn't it a bar yeah well, drink so unlikely to be a bar, at a bar but wasn't at a social event wasn't somewhere outside of the wasn't in trump tower or by his golf course yeah so as as i look to the 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 proof the quantum of proof which is what i instinctively would do uh, in terms of trying to prove a negative 
because you're now attempting to prove whether a phone call was or wasn't made. And it sounds as if that issue was pretty thoroughly vetted. Would we both or all three of us agree? In other words, the press secretary and the cabinet got together and decided that there was no hard evidence of an actual phone call? No, the press secretary actually came back and said there was no phone call. Yeah, I understand. That's what I'm sharing now is I assume that that came after some vetting of the issue. Yeah. Yes, after it came after the president of Mexico released a statement that said there was no phone call. Okay, right. And then ditto for the Boy Scouts, right? We have somebody stepping up in an official capacity with the Boy Scouts saying no such call was made. Exactly. Okay. So seemingly um, pretty darn strong evidence that the event did not take place as the president stated. That's correct. Okay. Yet there might be some evidence that there was a communication relative to the president of Mexico's discussions with the president, with President Trump. Yes. Their, their answer was that if we all remember back at the G20, which was when the 20 representatives uh, met in Europe, the presidents and chancellors of various leading countries got together, big photo op. I, I think that wasn't the one where the president pushed the folks out of the way to get in front of the photo, but it was the subsequent one. Uh, anyway, they met, and as you could guess, there's lots of conversations. And they said, well, evidently, this conversation must have happened then. That was kind of the defense. Uh, you, and you, he just got carried away and decided to characterize it as a recent phone call. Mitch, between two heads of state. Mitch, I, ha I have to defend the president. Don't you know it's, it's commonplace in Europe that when, you, when there's a photo opportunity, you shove everybody out of the way to get to the front? I mean, it's, okay, then I apologize. Europeans do that all the time. Michael, oh, throw, Michael throw, throw me a, a lifeline, will you, on the elements of USC 1001? I, 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 I absolutely, um, I, I will. And uh, uh, one more thing I want to say about the G20, though, of course, it wasn't the G20. It was the G19 against one. Um, everybody <laughs> against Trump. And that's what it was. Uh, you know, it literally was the G19 against one. Um, uh, you know, 18 U.S.C. 101 is um, a very broad statute that is used in federal prosecution across the board in a lot of different ways. It it is the base baseline for the False Claims Act for all types of false forms. Anytime somebody falsifies something in a government contract um, by way of hours, time uh, spent to get reimbursed by the government. Anytime somebody is submitting you know, a Medicare um, statement that's incorrect, the, the False Claims Act can be used. 18 U.S.C. Section 101 basically outlaws any false statement to the government. It, it wasn't in its nature, by my way of thinking and original design, it um, meant to encompass false statements by the government, um, but Mitch points out it could very well include false statements by the government. Um, courts and court proceedings are accepted from the statute because of a need for uh, uh, courts to govern their own conduct and for there to be complete free information flowing testimonially in court subject to the oath people take. And Congress also accepts itself 
from the statute, meaning uh, with, with respect uh, uh, to everything except uh, um, billing expenses or uh, expense reports. Congress, congressmen have to be honest in their expense reports, and you probably can remember some big expense report scandals in time. Um, there's a, there's a, uh, so Stephen, you know, to, to help you back on, on the elements, because you don't have it in front of you, and Mitch has sprung a um, surprise uh, <laughs> Sam morning law school exam on us both without even giving us the materials ahead of time, um, uh, which violates due process, Mitch. Yeah, I agree, Michael. <laughs> I'll keep trying and keep going. Uh, um, <laughs> the, the elements are that you have to knowingly and willfully Right? Knowingly and willfully falsify, conceal, or cover up by a scheme, uh, you know, make a materially false or fictitious statement, or uh, or or make a false writing, uh, uh, and there's a fine for it. Um, the and possible imprisonment. And possible imprisonment. The, okay, Michael, I'm going to warn you. I'm watching the time because we're coming up on a break, but keep keep going. Yeah, so the final thing is that the, the, the statute starts, Stephen, by saying, you know, whoever in any matter within the jurisdiction of the executive, legislative, or judicial branch of government knowingly and willfully does these things. And I, as I said, I think that the statute was originally designed for people submitting information to the government. Not yeah, with, with, with the motivation to gain in some way, right, typically, that- Michael? That's right. That's exactly. All right. Let's, when we come back, we're going to continue our discussion of uh, the topic that Mitch brought up. Um, you're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio, and we're talking about law and politics and our efforts to distinguish between the two. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this short break. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder, what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. 
But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We have been talking about law and politics and attempting to distinguish between law and politics. And before the break, Mitch, you had uh, introduced the uh, statements made by President Trump in the Oval Office relative to the Boy Scout speech and then uh, another uh, communication by the president, president that related to an alleged conversation with the president of Mexico. And you were going to distinguish between those two. Have at it. Yes, and let me let me do that, and then I would like to get back to, to Michael and talk a little more about the con- constitutional question of this, since we have a constitutional professor with us. But here's my my comment, and and one of the elements that Michael mentioned was materiality. Was was there a material false fact, or you know, there's intentionality, there's materiality. Obviously, the statement was intentional. The president made it. Um, the question is, what what was the intent, and what's the materiality? Well, the comment was to support, and my argument would be, the comment was intentionally made to support his legislative agenda to get funding from Congress. So this goes to Michael's question and your question, Stephen. Well, what do you get out of it? Uh, he wants to get funding for a border wall, additional security guards, additional funding for Homeland Security. And so he made a public statement as president of the United States that said, Mexico agrees with all of this. I just talked to the president of Mexico and he agrees. So I would say there's, it links every single element of USC 101 that would give rise to question of, were the standards of 101 met? Was it false, misleading, was it material? You're speaking to the gain and the motivation factor, right? Yes. And materiality. Okay. No, I think that's right. Well said. So, Michael, how did I do? I, you know, I think I think you, I think you did great. You're you're raising this really wonderful, subtle, um, well, or not so subtle. I, 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 I subtle only in my own way of thinking about the world, um, meaning I missed it. <laughs> so I kind of think it's subtle for me. Which, uh, but the point is, like, what laws apply? to these people in office. We started off the show saying that Congress pretty much exempts itself from every law that it passes, that the courtroom kind of has a bubble of its own world of immunity, right? So now we're in the executive branch, and we've got, uh, you know, that's the vast amount of government. Let's, let's just be very, very plain about that. The executive branch is most of the government. It's all, you know, it's all of the military and, and all of the law enforcement, 
and uh, all of the executive branch agencies. Uh, C- Congress is, you know, quite small, as right. You know, it, a building was built, and it's still the same size. And the Supreme Court has an even smaller building behind it. And and those, that's what's there. That's Congress. That's the Supreme Court. The executive branch goes all over the country, and uh, you know, it's it's huge. I guess the court system is pretty huge too. But so, what rules apply? To, to these folks, and, um, and particularly, you know, with respect to the president and his statements. You know, the Constitution um, has been interpreted by the Supreme Court to give the executive officer, the president of the United States in particular, wide latitude in um, actions in office, whether they violate legal standards or not. There is a qualified executive privilege and a qualified form of executive immunity as well. Um, And the reason for this is so that, uh, well, there's twofold. You know, number one, the Constitution provides a mechanism for removal of the president, and there is substantial political question, given the design of the government, whether or not that is the only method to remove a president in office, Second, um, uh, prosecuting a president while they're in office um, can be distracting and result in all types of other uh, harm to the nation. Um, uh, so as a consequence, generally speaking, for certain uh, types of offenses, um, uh, wide latitude has been afforded immunity to the president. Could the president walk around the street and start killing people? No. You know, lo- laws do apply to the president sitting in office. But given the constitutional structure of impeachment, there the Supreme Court has kind of carved out this common law of uh, a pass, if you will, or an immunity for most things this individual does while they are in office. Um and in that respect, Mitch, I'll blend law and politics, because the Constitution of the United States apparently, you know, most people don't recognize it. Most people, um, you know, you know, at least that voted for Trump, um, think the Declaration of Independence is a liberal rant, uh, rather than something was actually written by, you know, Thomas Jefferson, you know, back in the seat of our country, um, which is a sad state of affairs. But collapsing all those things together. The Constitution is, right, both law and politics. The Constitution is the supreme law of the land in the sense that constitutional law um, g- governs our lives in so many ways. And the Supremacy Clause in the Constitution says that federal law is the supreme law of the land. So everything kind of in our structure of government and our legal structure in many ways, flows from the Constitution. But the Constitution itself is a political instrument, right? The Constitution itself is a, an instrument that establishes a government. That's political. And there is a doctrine uh, uh, amongst the branches, and all of them um, uh, interact with this doctrine in ways that um, are largely... Um, uh, soft in the sense that they're not front and center to the American public every day, but it's not a perfect document. And and the and the ways that they this interaction occurs is that the branches of government don't like to say what one or the other can do. 
because the Constitution set all three branches up as equal. The courts, the president, and Congress. And it gave them all responsibilities, and it limited certain things that, that they could do. But no one wants to be the person that, that, that calls cop on another branch of government, because in theory, they all have equal power. As for prosecuting the president, <clears throat> it's also almost impossible, because he'd have to prosecute himself. Um, so I think what you talked talk me into in the idea is that, uh, and, uh, and I'd like to kind of, kind of wrap on this one piece of it, because I do want to get briefly to the Boy Scouts, yeah. which is that based on what you said, Michael, is that there could have been, and I might be able to prove up that, that there were standards that are not met, standards that were set within U.S. law, but they're countervailing standards that say the process of which you would implement these laws against the president of the United States have, have a whole different list. Stephen's not going to take him into court. The attorney general would have to help address an issue of articles of impeachment, and the Constitution's clear about how you go through all that. So right. there is a different standard to the president, although I would have thought that I would be saying that because it's a higher standard of integrity, character, and not lying. But there's also a different standard of applying the law to the president. There is a different standard. Exactly, Mitch. There is a different standard applying the law to the president because the president is a named organ of government. And the functioning of the constitutional structure of government gives that president, in a common law sense, a constitutional law sense, the same immunity that the courts and Congress get to run their affairs. And that is... So I'm going to cycle back to something you said at the very beginning, which is, and that I responded to, which is, there is redress. But in this case, the redress is most likely political at the ballot box and not legal in the court. Exactly. I, you know, I do people would apply principles... To, to the president, I you know I, I often hear this justification for the fact that our president lies so much, and and that he's a master persuader. You know he's a a great negotiator, and he, yes he 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 lies and he makes things up, but they're little things uh, that he makes up in order to get what he wants, and the things that he wants on the bigger picture are good for the nation. Well, you know what? If I had a second grader and the teacher came out of class and said, hey, you know what, I just want to let you know that Johnny lies every day. We're observing this kind of mass propensity to lie in order to trick the other students into getting what he wants. And, you know, I'd be scared as a parent, right? You'd, you'd address this. You'd say something's wrong with that. That's not normal behavior. That's not good behavior. And so to sit there and, 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 and have a president of the United States that is engaged in this kind of conscious conduct, creates very different difficulties, I think, for the nation. It sets a standard that that's okay. It changes every fabric of society. How does Johnny in the second grade say that he's not doing anything different than the president's doing? Okay, so let me use that as a quick transition to get back to the Boy Scouts, because they're not quite second graders, but these are young young individuals, not of, not of voting age. Yeah. So, sorry, and, I was going to say, so, some are second graders. Oh. Oh, that's, uh, but those they the Cub Scouts, Michael. Yes, yes. those are the Cub Scouts. Yeah. So, and and let me make a quick disclaimer here. I'm a second generation Eagle Scout. My grandfather was a Scout leader in the 30s. My dad was an Eagle Scout in the 40s. I was an Eagle Scout in the 60s. My my son was in Scouting in the 90s. So, I have a personal uh, allegiance to the issues of 
the comments that the president made, appropriateness or not, at the National Jamboree. I went to the National Jamboree in 1969, so this is this does resonate a bit with me. I would be one of those that were counted as being simply outraged, both at the Boy Scouts and the president's comments there. But even with all that said, I'll go back to what Stephen asked me to do at the beginning, is... I would distinguish the fact that the president saying that he was called by the Boy Scouts of America, even though it turns out that that also was a lie, that he, his press secretary, acknowledged that no such call was ever made, that that was not an act in the Oval Office of a presidential activity, and I would not apply the same rules of USC 1001 to that, and I would say that's a political statement that he made about his speech, where he gives it, how he gives it. And I would argue, I would distinguish it and say, that's not a conversation of law. That's a conversation of politics. And Mitch, let me jump in on this one. I, I assumed that the reason you're able to make that distinction is because in the case of the Boy Scouts quip, there is no evidence of gain or it's not motivated to advance some kind of agenda. Is that where you're going? Yeah, I think it's not material to the, the operation of being pricked. Yeah, so to, I, I, I mean, I, it almost curls in my mouth saying that of the idea that okay. the president lying is not material to it. But I, I would actually defend that. I wouldn't apply the same standards to this. This is going to shock both of you, but I actually see problems with that statement also. And <laughs> I, can, I can probably make the argument that he is advancing some kind of an agenda in a way. I could too, Stephen, and I, I, I yeah. agree with you. But the conversation itself is wonderful, and that's, it, it shows exactly why... We can't have this conversation because if we multiplied this conversation by 250 million Americans, there would be different views. And we can't parse the, the, the president's actions in, in some way that crosses law or politics for just that reason. It's all politics, and we, and we have to give the president the latitude to lie. Whether we should elect a president that is a just flat-out liar is a whole different thing in this nation. But uh, uh, it, it has to be a political question rather than a legal question, or we would be having this debate every single day in the criminal context, right? Absolutely. Well, Stephen and Michael, a great conversation, as always. I hope this has helped inform our listeners as they continue to make, make their own judgment. And, and as we've always tried to do on this show, we've tried to set up the standards of law so that you can address that as you read these things, as you hear about them in the news, and, and parse for yourself whether you think these are legal issues, political issues, and what type of redress we would like to have as citizens of this great country. As we recommend to you every week, you can hear an archive of today's show at voiceamerica.com business channel. You can go to Wagner and WinnickOnTheLaw.com. Stephen and Michael, thank you very much again for a great show. And as we remind you each week, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people. But I didn't know that I could go to law school without a four-year degree. 
I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child. So quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously, my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandi Luis and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. 
For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 